Uh, yesterday, the last uh, section I was reading was about samatha and vipassana. And um, uh, Ajahn Sara didn't quote the particular um, example here, but a frequent uh, analogy that uh, Lumpur Chai used uh, to describe samatha and vipassana and that the relationship between the two. As he said, um, the... Uh, <coughs> They uh, they are really um, the the same thing. They're really connected. You can't really separate the two. So the um, the uh, analogy he would give is uh, a candle and a match. And so the the imagery being uh, vipassana is like a, a match, and samatha is like a candle. And so far as if you have a candle and it's dark, uh, unless you have a match, you have the potential for light, but you can't see anything. You know? Um, if you have a match and no candle then you can strike the match and you can see for a little bit but uh, the light won't last very long because there's only a very small amount of, of fuel there uh, in the match but if you put the two together you strike the match and light the candle then the light can be sustained for a long period of time and uh, also um, candles and matches were one of the main forms of light in our kutis in the, in the forest and in the monastery in those days, so that was a very ready, um, easily uh, understood, relatable uh, uh, set of images. And so that, that also demonstrates how the, the two work together, so that uh, samatha, uh, there's a potential for, for clarity, for understanding, but it's not actualized because the, the candle isn't lit, there's the, the wax and the, and the wick are there, but if you don't like the candle, it's, you know, you're holding a candle, but it's still dark, you, know, you can't see anything. Um, and that uh, with a, uh, similarly with a match you can see, but it's only for a short period of time. So samatha without vipassana, um, if there's concentration but there's no insight, then it's like having um, the potential for understanding, but you're still in the dark. And then vipassana without samatha, then it's like you have a moment of illumination, but it can't sustain itself because the mind is, uh, is not focused, not, uh, not, not steady. And so that's another way he used of... Uh, representing the relationship between those two. <coughs> also, in that, that previous reading, um, uh, the um, uh, as Ajahn Jayasaro mentioned it, um, the although the Buddha himself did not use those terms with any great frequency, samatha and vipassana, uh, concentration and insight, they gained much prominence in the centuries following his death. So also, um, very, people are very familiar with the, um, say, description of um, the, uh, how, to, how to do vipassana meditation. So, <clears throat> say, for example, concentrating the mind using mindfulness of breathing to focus the attention in the present. And then when the concentration is, is well established, then to let go of the breath as a particular object and then to... Uh, uh, open the mind to the the flow of perceptions and experiences, thoughts and and um, uh, and other you know sounds and um, sensations and so forth, and to use the the reflections on anicca, dukkha, anatta, on the impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self, uh, at, in relationship to those uh, uh, phenomena, uh, the patterns of experience arising and passing, and with the application of those reflections on, on uh, anicca, dukkha, anatta, then uh, that brings about a, uh, a clarity and a, a, a seeing of the process of experience rather than being caught up in the, the content of experience. And that, that is what leads uh, to the experience of insight. So there's actually nowhere in the Pali Canon where that description is given. It doesn't exist. It's put together from a, a number of different sources and passages, but um, there, you don't find the Buddha ever explaining my, uh, the development of Vipassana in, in those words. doesn't mean that it's invalid, but when um, people say, as, as an interesting example, people um, uh, might, or in the, in the past they have done, when uh, Lumpur Sumedho or, or myself would give uh, instruction about listening to the inner sound, listening to the... the uh, the sound of silence as a meditation method. Uh, sometimes people would say, uh, 
Lumpur, I mean, that's not really, um, that's not part, that's not Theravadan, you know, it's not, you don't, you don't find that in the Pali Canon. You can quite truthfully say, well, you don't find Vipassana meditation in the Pali Canon either. <laughs> but it's, uh, there's um, a, a, quite a variety of different moods and, uh, and different methods and practices that have um, uh, evolved over time and the difference of moods and currents that go through different countries and different Buddhist traditions so that um, I feel that the, uh, it, there can be an attachment to um, what, uh, what we think of as being true and right or think, well, that's not, that's not the Buddha's word. But part of what we understand as the Buddha's word and the, the tradition comes from the Pali Canon, but a lot of it comes from those subsequent uh, uh, evolution of, uh, of the teachings and the practices in different countries uh, in different parts of, of Asia, and uh, and they, I would say they have equal validity if people have used them and they've shown them to work, like vipassana, the vipassana meditation I was just describing. You know, people have have used that very uh, actively, and for most of us, that's our sort of standard uh, application of vipassana meditation as a as a method. And so it's been very very valuable. The fact that it doesn't actually appear in those words in the Pali Canon is kind of secondary to that. So I feel that um, there's no need to be too snobbish about uh, where things come from, or whether it's the word of the Buddha, or whether things entirely match up with with uh, the Pali Canon, or can be found there, or can't be found there, or represented in, in different ways. But rather, you um, to listen to the teachings as they're given, to to use the resources we have in terms of the the written word or the spoken word or recordings. Um, and to apply them, and, and then to see what the results of applying them are—that's the uh, uh, the important thing. And then the the basic principle I feel is, if it works, it's the right thing. You know, that you have to see whether a particular method uh, has value and benefit from applying it within your own life. So the next section, having said that, is called the development of insight. <clears throat> On one occasion, Lumpur taught about the development of insight in terms of the two jhana factors of vitaka and vichara. He said that with the mind in a state of calm, a thought might arise, vitaka, prompting appreciation of it, vichara, resulting in rapture, <coughs> which is piti, which would then propel the mind into a deeper state of lucid calm. On the passing away of that state, the appreciation could resume. And it's Lumpur speaking. If you maintain awareness, you'll get a report from the scene. It's similar to there being a person in a house with six windows. You stand outside watching the windows. From outside, you see someone appearing at one window, and then someone else at another, and you assume that there's six people in the house. In fact, it's all just the one person moving from window to window. That one person is named three characteristics. Everything is unstable. The three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self are the object of vipassana. Penetrating them will cut off all doubts. So the six windows are representing the six senses, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind. And uh, so watching the, the house with six windows, it's like watching the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind and the activity. And then the, the, the figure appearing in each of those windows is, uh, he's saying is uh, the three characteristics. Also, uh, vitaka and vichara, there's often, the word vitaka is um, also just generally used for conceptual thought. And um, uh, the, uh, the translations for those two vary from, from place to place, but um, the vitaka is, uh, say, uh, usually uh, employed to refer to using the thinking mind to pick up a particular theme, and then the vichara is then uh, exploring that theme. So a, a helpful analogy that's also given, uh, I don't know if he uses that later on, but um, is that of a nail. If you're uh, placing a nail on a, a piece of wood where you want to nail it in, that's the, the vitaka is placing the nail in the right spot, and then the vichara is driving the nail home. 
As the practice of contemplating whatever phenomena arose in the calm, uh, in the the calm, lucid mind is impermanent, unsatisfactory and not self-progressed, the meditator would experience a disjunction between the knowing and that which was known. And Lumpachara is speaking again. It's not that you have to force this disjunction. Through the abandonment, the putting down of attachment, the mind and its object become automatically disjoined. So uh, Ajahn Jayasara is using this word disjunction, so meaning to, to separate out. So I like the word to disentangle or, or uh, the adjective unentangled. So that, because uh, um, it's not um, usually just connected, it's also often wrapped up in, in a kind of tangled and knotted way. And to continue, at this stage, Lumpur said that the distinction between the mind and its present object was like that between water and oil. The separation allowed for a constant examination of phenomena. Again, Lumpur is speaking here. If you take your mind to this point, wherever you go, the mind will be analyzing. This is the enlightenment factor called investigation of Dhamma. It rolls along by itself, and you talk with yourself. You resolve and release the feelings, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness that arise. Nothing can get close to the mind. It has its work to do. This happens naturally. It's not something that you can contrive. He said that it was at this stage that the Buddha's teachings on the foundations of mindfulness became clear. When the membrane connecting the knowing from the known had been cut, Then the meditator saw the body in the body, feelings in feelings, states of mind in states of mind, and wholesome and unwholesome dhammas in wholesome and unwholesome dhammas. Those are all quotes from the Satipatthana Sutta. In other words, they were seen clearly for what they were, without superimposing upon them an independent, self-existent owner. And again, that that imagery of oil and water is something that that, uh, Lumpur Cha would uh, use a lot as a, a, um, a simile for the the mind in meditation, and also how um, that the with the development of insight he would uh, he would say it's not so, something that has to be to be forced or trying to make your mind concentrated in order to get something. And the image he would often use, he'd say, um, uh, uh, if you take oil and water in a bottle and you shake them up, they seem to be one liquid, so that. Uh, and this is how we normally relate to our perceptions. There's the assumption, I think, I see, I hear, I feel. Um, the the knower and the known uh, seem to be all one uh, one uh, substance, one uh, one compound. Um, and the, the <coughs> so that you don't have to force the knowing and the known apart. You don't have to um, make that a sort of complicated or even a, a, a particularly willed process. Rather, he said, if you put the bottle down, then the oil and the water will separate out naturally from each other. You don't have to, you don't have to do anything except put the bottle down. So if we stop shaking up the bottle, which is sustaining those habits of attachment of, of um, this is my body, these are my thoughts, these are my feelings, I'm going here, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I like, I don't like, etc., etc. That's all shaking the bottle. If the bottle is put down... And then the um, the the that uh, self-creating uh, process and the habits of attachment and identification are, are gentled, as it were. They 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 are brought to an end. Then the no, the knowing and the known naturally separate out from each other. And so this is what uh, Lumpur is talking about. Um, it rolls along by itself. You talk with yourself. You resolve and release the feelings. So a lot of his teaching and his, his description of his own practice, there's a certain amount of that talking to, uh, talking to yourself that he often will so articulate, will, will actually express the, the flow of thoughts and perceptions and, and uh, reflections going on in his mind. He'll say, oh, so I thought to myself, hey, why is it like that? Or, hey, look at that. You know, why am I so attached to that? So on and so forth. And so that that... Um, in the course of, of the day, uh, even though talking to yourself is usually taken as an example or a, a sign of, of losing your, 
losing your sanity, it can also be uh, you're actually finding your sanity. That you're <coughs> just to use little cues, like you know, here's the experience of walking, or uh, here's the experience of talking. Here's the 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 perception of of time passing, but really um, time never actually passes. It's always uh, the the present. So just ways of using conceptual thought um, and those kind of reflections to sustain that, that quality of, of non-entanglement. So just as like in this moment we can say we are sitting in the sala, then to use that, that, um, that quality of reflection to say, yes, well, yeah, I can say we're in the sala, but actually the sala is in our minds. Uh, I, I close my eyes, you all disappear. I open my eyes you appear again. The, you know, nowadays I, I, I need uh, glasses to, to read things close up, but if I have my glasses on, then everyone is really, you know, really blurry. <laughs> so that, uh, what, uh, what, what am I seeing? What, uh, what is the true image? Is it uh, the, the clear letters on the page and on the, the, blurry, the blurry figures in the distance? It's helpful I've got such a long nose, I can have the, the glasses sitting down on my nose and don't get in the way of so I can see the people in the distance and read uh, simultaneously. That's handy. As useful as a usefulness in having a lengthy nose, you've got a lot of uh, maneuverability for your glasses. But <clears throat> this is a collection of mental events. Hearing is uh, is that sota vinyana, ear consciousness. The, uh, the the quality of seeing, chaku vinyana, eye consciousness. The, the sensation of the, the, the body uh, sitting, if the weight of the body sitting in the chair, the, the touch of the wood under my fingers. That's, uh, they say, well, I'm, uh, uh, my hand is touching the, the, the chair, but the hand and the chair are both mental events. They're both known in, in the mind. They are both uh, things that are represented uh, by t- uh, feeling consciousness, mental consciousness, the words chair, touch. <laughs> Uh, word, you know, these are all um, sounds, concepts arising and passing away. So that if we are reflecting on the the nature of experience, then it's it's very skillful to say, oh, all this is this is happening in the the field of perception. The world happens in the mind. Oh, so it's using that kind of uh, articulation, putting things into words, to help clarify. Uh, and, and in essence, putting the bottle down and letting that quality of knowing uh, naturally uh, separate out from the known, and so that that uh, that natural um, division—it's not something that, that's that's forced. It's not like a uh, a, uh, a forced separation. It's because so water and oil are naturally immiscible; they can't they can't be mixed together. And if you leave them alone, then they they naturally separate out. So it's a really very very fine uh, imagery, a uh, fine image uh, um, that uh, Lumpur Cha uses in this respect because it's it's demonstrating that unforced and natural quality. So also how uh, with the meditation we can be very prone to trying to get something or have the mind be a particular way, and the 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 imagery of just putting the bottle down just, just leave it alone you know it's it's a, an act it's something that is done yeah there's an effort to to put it down and to to not pick it up again and shake it some more but putting the bottle down is that establishing that that view of um, uh, everything is impermanent unsatisfactory not self it's it's uh, letting go of those three characteristics uh, as um uh, as habits of attachment, that things are permanent, they're, they're something that are pleasing or, or can be satisfying, and that they are owned by this, uh, this individual, this being. And so that uh, once that gesture of putting the bottle down is done, then the, the, the separation of the, the knowing and the, the known, the, um, uh, that uh, natural uh, transcendence, really, that, the transcendent quality of uh, awakened awareness, it, it's uh, it's able to to manifest its it, uh, its own nature, um, f- uh, in a sense, 
helps it to, to disentangle, to withdraw from its attachment to sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought and feeling. So any questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes. I have to admit, I really struggle with this idea of uh, knowing. As it, for me, it seems to reinforce a kind of duality, because you can separate a knower, a subject, and an object. And I don't really understand how that's compatible with all the teaching from the Buddha. Like in a hearing, there's only the heard, <laughs> and in seeing, there's only the seen. Because all there is, that's it. And I think the main issue is, for, for my point of view, is like this belief there is somebody here, a subject, and the world out there. And this idea that we can separate the knowing and the object seems to confirm this feeling. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Um, <coughs> the, um, in, in a sense, that's the one part of the process, I would say. And that but it, it ripens in a quality of what, what I call subjectless, objectless awareness. So there's, a, uh, there's not a, a, a this watching a that. Because that still can, can easily bring a subtle quality of a knower. Or like the, even the, the term they use in, in Thai language, puru, you know, the one who knows. That, um, that occasionally... Uh, Lumpur Cha would, would say that's not really a, that, that good a term because it gives the impression that there's this separate entity who's doing the, know, the knowing and actually Ajahn Jayasara, he I was talking with him just a few weeks ago when we met up in Thailand and he said um, he uses the term the, the element of knowing Dhatu the element so Tatru rather than Puru like the, the element of knowing or the quality of knowing so that that, um, because that, that th- those kind of terms of being the watcher, being the one who knows, being the observer, or the silent witness, I mean, we, we use those kind of terms. And Lumpur Cha, Lumpur Sumedha would use them quite um, ordinarily, customarily in, in giving teachings. But it's a, um, you know, it's a figure of speech more than anything. And that if that's really developed then that quality of knowing it, be, it essentially becomes subjectless and objectless. There is, as you say, there's, the, there's the, the seeing, the hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and there isn't a, a, a sort of a, a, um, a, a separate subject that's a sort of subtle kind of, a, of an eye. Um, there, the, the knowing is naturally, um, uh, say, Liberated from from uh, from limitation, it doesn't have to be um, say um, forced into a, a separation. But uh, anyway, so that, that it's, again, it's a bit of a clumsy term, subjectless, objectless awareness. <laughs> uh, but it's that uh, it's also the kind of area that it's good to to use uh, wise reflection and this kind of inquiry to explore. Yeah. So to ask a question like, what is it that knows? Uh, is there a, a, a thing that, there is, that is known, or is there just this? Yeah. To, to use that kind of um, uh, reflection to, to puncture that duality. The, um, the, uh, the three, what we call the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta, uh, can also be um, seen as a part of a larger group. And in the, the latter years of his teaching career, Ajahn Buddhadasa talked about the nine characteristics of existence, uh, rather than just having three. So the, so the first three are anicca, uncertainty or, or um, transiency. Uh, second, uh, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. Then third one, anatta. Then the the second three were um, uh, dhammata, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, dhamma niyamata, functioning according to the laws of nature, dhamma niyamata, um, dhamma uh, tittata, uh, stab- uh, formed according to the to the laws of nature, and then idapachayata following the laws of cause and effect. So those are the, the, the second three. And then the last three were sunyata, emptiness, 
uh, tatata, suchness, and then the last one, atamayata, the, uh, which is um, uh, a very subtle quality of awareness that, um, that he spent um, a lot of time trying to explain, and said this is the final word of Buddhism. This is the, uh, he said, it, it's only mentioned about half a dozen times, about five or six times in the whole Pali canon, atamayata. Um, but it's uh, but he he spoke about it quite extensively, and I did a whole chapter in the island on that that word, and um, it lit- it's in a way it's it's talking about that dissolution of the subject object duality, because um, so the, and those three uh, sunyata tatata and atamayata uh, go together in in a, in a quite a significant way I feel because with the um, with the, the reflection on emptiness, sunyata, it's saying here uh, that uh, that uh, the, the the world of the um, objective experience is empty, empty of, uh, and it, and then tatata is saying it's empty, but it's thus. <laughs> uh, tatata means suchness or thusness. So in a way, emptiness is saying uh, no to the world of things. Uh, uh, Tathata is saying yes to the world of things, and then Atamayata is kind of saying there are no things. The uh, literally the word Atamayata means not made of that. A is a negative. Is, um, uh, tam meaning uh, uh, means that. Mayata means um, made ofness, so not made of thatness. So it's the uh, the mind going out to to give an object thingness or solidity to reify it. So the uh, and uh, one of the helpful um, descriptions of the origin of the word is that um, the in Indian philosophy they had the idea that uh, when you saw something, when you in the, like I, I see this clock. Uh, then the the imagery of how perception works is the mind sends out a kind of a ray that goes and occupies the object, becomes consistent with that tanmayata, and then it, it brings it, it back, uh, and, the, and the mind says, "Oh, a clock." So that that uh, the the word meaning consisting of that or, or um, um, uh, consubstantial, is that another difficult English word. Becoming of the same substance with that is tanmayata, and then atamayata is that not going out to uh, to become consubstantial or to to sort of mix with things. So that atamayata is a quality of awareness that is it's not going out and creating the world of things. It's a it's a a, a quality of of kind of total clarity, and so that that's. When um, I was in India recently, to, um, giving a, a week-long set of teachings about um, the, we uh, used the chapter of the island for that. And um, so, in an Indian group, there's a lot of people who have experienced or practiced Advaita Vedanta, and so Advaita Vedanta, the, again to give you a little Sanskrit lesson, so Art means not, Dva means to, uh, and Ta is the same as the Pali Advaita, not tunus, Vedanta, the, the teaching of not tunus. So uh, uh, I would say that Atamayata is the Pali version of Advaita. It's like uh, not thatness or not tunus, Advā, not to, so not subject and object. And so that the the quality of wisdom and clarity that the Advaita Vedanta teachings are aiming at. Is exactly what is um, described with the uh, with atamayata, and so that then um, when we talk about uh, the awareness disentangling from from the object, then it, it's it's kind of dualistic in its expression. But then that also that's part of a a, 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 a sort of more extensive process. And so just like with with um, sunyata, tatata, and atamayata, it's, it's also describing a. a the, the uh, a progression of qualities, um, if that makes sense. So it would be more like a halfway house. 
Yeah. yeah, it's like a provisional teaching saying, like saying, we're in the sala. Yes, but no. Yeah. But also the sala is in us. So it's, a, it's like a, a, um, uh, a convenient fiction, a, a convenient way of speaking. Um, just like when, when the Buddha was giving that teaching to Bahia, um, in the scene there is only the scene, in the herd there is only the herd, in the sense there is only the sense, in the cognized there is only the cognized. And they said, when, so then Bahia, when you train yourself in that way, then <coughs> you will not be able to find uh, yourself in the world of that. Or, and you will not, if you don't find yourself in the world of that, you won't be able to find yourself in the world of this. And, <coughs> and uh, you will not be able to find yourself either in the world of this or in the world of that or anywhere, any place between the two. This is the end of suffering. So in exactly the same way. It's not to find substantiality in the object or substantiality in the world of the subject. Uh, <coughs> There, or, or any place between the two, it, it's it's uh, it's not it's not halfway. <laughs> it's a it's a dissolution of that whole subject-object dynamic, uh, and that the Bahia Sutta. There's a lot of debate about the correct <laughs> translation of the Pali, um, but it seems to be one of those teachings that the Buddha gave that was um, very closely crafted to the person he was talking to, and. And because also the language he uses in talking to Bahia is kind of unique, um, and it's um, B- uh, Bahia was a, a wanderer from the what they call the bark uh, bark clad ascetics. So he wore clothes robes made out of tree bark, a woven tree bark, um, and uh, the uh, the the bark clad ascetics had a particularly close connection with the Brihad Aranyika Upanishad, one of the Upanishads. And so if you look at that particular Upanishad, it bears a, a close, some close parallels with the Bahia Sutta. So the Buddha's using the same kind of language. Like, So meeting Bahia and seeing he's wearing tree bark, then he's using the format of a teaching that Bahia would be familiar with to put across his own teaching. So it's like um, he uses that... Just as if he's talking to a, a, a cow herd, he uses analogies about cows. If he's talking to a, a, a warrior noble a king, he talks about uh, the army and such like. So he was talking to Bahia as a bark-clad ascetic. So he used that format of that particular teaching that was uh, uh, so well-known to him. And uh, there's a... Uh, similarly, that, that the teaching where um, the, he uses the word uh, vinyana... Um, the, when the Buddha uses the word vinyana in a transcendent, uh, with a transcendent meaning, vinyanang anidasanang anantang sabatopabang, the consciousness which is uh, uh, which is non-manifestative, which is formless, uh, limitless, and radiant in all directions or accessible from every side, which is a very um, popular theme of Lumpur Sumatos. I mean, I've even seen some some tea mugs here with vinyanang anidasanang written on them. <laughs> it's literally written on the mugs here. <laughs> so I'm not sure how many people, when they're drinking the tea, notice the consciousness which is non-manifestative. But, uh, so that's a, a very unique usage of the word vinyana as a sort of transcendent quality. Normally, vinyana is referring to discriminative consciousness of the senses and so on. But um, uh, Lumpur Pasano pointed out that the only time the Buddha uses those. Uh, that phrase is when he's talking to Brahma gods, or talking about um, uh, the, uh, uh, the, or there's a Brahma god involved in in the story or the description, and so uh, it's like I, I haven't managed to track it down. And um, so anyone who's looking for a research pro- project <laughs> can do a, can do some hunting. But my suspicion is there was some Brahmanical teaching, one of the Vedas or the Upanishads, that uses the that kind of phrase in a similar way and then the Buddha uh, takes what will be a, fam- a familiar phrase or form and then tweaks it to convey his own particular teaching so um, if you're interested there's a chapter called Atamayata not made of that in the island what I wrote yes. <laughs> so it, it covers a lot of what I just said but also there's um, 
few other quotations that relate to that because also it's atamayata sometimes it's only used five or six times in the canon sometimes it it seems to refer to uh, a letting go of the object <coughs> so that like um uh, and so Ajantanisra often translates it as non-fashioning, so not making the object. And then, but other times it's more referring to um, the subject. So then, um, so Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it as non-identification. So sometimes, but it's, it's really, I would say, referring equally to, to both, like not making an object, not making a subject, but that quality of awakened uh, awareness uh, that is subjectless and objectless. Okay, to continue. The next section is called Attainments. At a certain stage in meditation practice, the, quote, defilements of insight, unquote, may arise. Here, unenlightened <coughs> meditators come to mistakenly believe that intensely positive mental states, such as illumination and bliss, are indications of enlightenment. Lumpur speaks. You attach to the goodness that arises in your practice. You attach to the purity. You attach to the knowledge. This is called vipassanu. So that's a, a, a play on words. So the, the Pali is vipassanu pakilesa. So, uh, and so Ajahn Chah is saying, this is vipassanu, not vipassana. It's a, so it's a... Um, he uh, would frequently use those kind of word plays to get a theme across. And the, the vipassana upakilesa, or the defilements of insight, are a list of ten states uh, that appears in the Patisambhidamagga. It consists of illumination, knowledge, rapture, tranquility, bliss, resolution, exertion, assurance, equanimity, and decisiveness. So that might all sound like good stuff. Beware, <laughs> be careful, because it's the, uh, if those um, qualities arise and they're out of balance or the mind is heavily attached or, or um, absorbed or identified with those, then they become um, obstacles. Through the practice of meditation, defilements can be so effectively suppressed that they may seem to have been completely eradicated. As a result, meditators can develop an unshakable self-confidence in their perceptions. If their teacher refuses to accept the validity of their assumed enlightenment, they interpret it as either a sad misjudgment on the teacher's part or else as jealousy. I think that's um, spoken from experience there. <laughs> Strong measures may be needed in such cases and a short, sharp shock is usually the recommended cure. In the commentaries, there are stories of awakened monks disabusing others of their delusions by mentally projecting hologram-like moving images of elephants in rut or alluring women in front of them. Caught by surprise, the monk who had believed himself to have transcended lust and fear of death is suddenly made painfully aware that the defilements have only been driven underground and are still lying latent in his mind. Lumpur would tell the story of Lumpu Pao, uh, who replied to a nun's declaration that she'd become a stream enterer with a curt, that's a bit, better than a, a bit better than a dog. In Thailand, comparing a human being to a dog is considered extremely offensive. In this country, it would be quite a compliment. The shock and anger that arose in the Mechi, when spoken to in this unexpected way, immediately punctured her conceit. And that's uh, also related to that story about the, the anagami, um, that the... Uh, when, uh, uh, as I said, uh, I heard the story that Lumpur said, oh, um, we, uh, uh, we use the word anagami to refer to a mangy dog in our, in our village. Lumpur once used the same method with a similar result when a Mechi at Wabapong mistakenly believed that she had attained a stage of enlightenment. He listened silently to her, silently to her claim and then, with his face a stern mask, said coldly, Liar. It was one of the subjects on which Lumpur could be fierce. Don't ever allow yourself to get puffed up. Whatever you become, don't make anything of it. If you become a stream enterer, then leave it at that. If you become an arahant, then leave it at that. Live simply. Keep performing beneficial deeds. And wherever you are, you'll be able to live a normal life. 
There's no need to go boasting to anybody that you've attained this or become that. And another comment he made on that um, that same area is like, don't be an arahant, don't be a bodhisattva, don't be anything at all. If you're anything at all, you'll suffer. Somebody had asked him about the, the whether it was better to be a bodhisattva or an arahant. To leave leave that all alone. There's um, also a um, a story he would tell of uh, that comes from the from the scriptures from the commentaries of uh, the the monk Tucho Potila who was uh, very famous as a Dhamma teacher and was apparently abbot of eighteen different monasteries or had eighteen different branch monasteries under his guidance and was uh, very uh, highly regarded and um, very, um, uh, say, much praised and, uh, and people sought out his teachings and wanted to go and live with him, study with him. But he, uh, he had the, the, um, the, the intuition or the, the sense that he still had a lot to learn. And then he heard that there was a seven-year-old novice who was living nearby, who was uh, who was an arahant, had the reputation of an arahant, and so it was quite a, quite a thing. But Tucho Botila went to go and pay respects to the seven-year-old arahant, novice, and um, see so someone here is can become arahants. There's one. Yeah. <laughs> More than seven years old, but you know, this is the Dhamma ending age, you know. <laughs> So, uh, but Tucho Botila, this famous Ajahn, highly regarded, went to go and uh, request teachings um, uh, and guidance from this seven-year-old novice. And so, um, uh, and Lump- yeah, Lumpur used to delight in telling this story. So the, the novice said, um, you know, see that, see that pond over there? And Tucho Botila said, yes. Said, um, walk, uh, walk towards the pond and don't stop until I tell you to stop. Uh, if you're serious about uh, wanting to study with me, then you'll do what I say, right? So um, uh, Tucho Portilla then just started walking and then walked towards the pond, then started uh, sort of struggling through the mud and then got into the water up to his knees, up to his waist, up to his chest, you know, up to his nose. Just kept walking, kept walking, kept walking. And then finally the novice said, OK, stop. You can come out now. <laughs> so, so he came out uh, of the pond soaking wet, covered in mud, and said, OK, now I think you're, you're, you're ready to, to start uh, studying the teachings. So that uh, in that in that instance, um, that uh, the, uh, the person had the wisdom to realize, yeah, I've got a lot of knowledge, or um, I have a, a lot of places that have been established under my guidance, but um, the... Um, that's the, that's not the important thing. And if there's if the um, if there's an arahant nearby, even if even if the arahant is only seven years old, then certainly it's worth um, going to receive instruction from there, not to be proud or inflated or sort of believe the advertising that uh, that people make ab- about you. Any questions? Thoughts on that? So the next section is called Beyond the Monkey. One sign that the practice was on the right path was the feeling of sober sadness that arose through constant contemplation of the three characteristics, which evolves into nibida or disenchantment. An illumination takes uh, is speaking here. An illumination takes place, then disenchantment sets in. Disenchantment with this body and mind. Disenchantment with things that arise and pass away and are unstable. You feel it wherever you are. When the mind is disenchanted, its sole interest is in finding the way out of all those things. It sees the suffering inherent in the world, the suffering inherent in life. When the mind has entered this state, then wherever you sit, there's nothing but impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self. There's nowhere to take hold of anything anymore. If you sit at the foot of a tree, you hear a discourse from the Buddha. If you go to a mountain, you hear a discourse from the Buddha. You see all trees as just one tree. You see all creatures as of one species. You see that nothing deviates from this truth, that all things come into existence, become established, begin to change, and then cease. Lumpur made clear that the disenchantment that he was referring to was not an expression of aversion, for that would have been simply another expression of craving. 
This disenchantment was the feeling that arose through seeing how mistaken it had been to consider impermanent phenomena as self, or belonging to self. It was waking up from the enchantment of body and mind. Engelport speaking. This is not the monkey feeling disenchanted. It's feeling disenchanted with being a monkey. Does that make sense? This is not the monkey feeling disenchanted. It's feeling disenchanted with being a monkey. Lumpur maintained that Mainair, awareness of the present mental object as changeful, fluid, unreliable, of uncertain outcome, was the unerring guide right from the very beginning of meditation practice <coughs> until its final conclusion. When mental objects were recognized as changeful, he said, it was like breaching the boat of conceit below the waterline, the sense, I am, listed to one side and sunk. Lumpur taught that complete liberation of the mind was the result of creating a momentum where the tirelessly repeated inner contemplation of the three characteristics in a mind free from the hindrances was complemented by a steady effort to be mindful and alert to the three characteristics in daily life. Eventually, the constant repetition and increased profundity of the contemplation reached a tipping point and bore fruit. Although Lumpur was reticent about talking in detail uh, about the higher stages of practice, he did, on occasion, make some important observations. In one of his discourses, he described the case of the meditator who has, quote, a glimpse of Nibbana, unquote, but is unable to fully integrate his understanding and has to return to the work of wisdom until the mind is fully mature. Lumpur is speaking here. It's like someone who's in the middle of stepping across a stream with one foot on the near bank and the other foot on the far side. They know for sure that there are two sides to the stream but are unable to cross over it completely and so they step back. The understanding that there exist two sides to the stream is similar to that of the Gotrabu Pugala or the Gotrabu Chitta. And Gotrabu means a change of lineage. Gotra is your ancestry or your lineage. So Gotrabu is the change of lineage, i.e. the changing the lineage between the unenlightened and the enlightened qualities. It means that you know the way to go beyond the defilements, but are still unable to go there. And so you step back. Once you know for yourself that this state truly exists, this knowledge remains with you constantly as you continue to practice meditation and develop your parami, your spiritual virtues. You are both certain of the goal and the most direct way to reach it. So it's also in that, that phrase that we um, have in the chanting, the, the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings. Sometimes people are a bit mystified by what that refers to. So the, the four pairs, or the eight kinds, is uh, referring to each of the four stages of liberation. So stream entry, once returner, non-returner, arahat. There's two parts to that. So the, the, what they call the, the path and the fruit. So there's the on the path to stream entry and then the fruit of stream entry. On the path to being a once returner and then the fruit of once return. The path to anagami, to non-returner and the, the fruit of non-returning. The path to arahantship and then the fruit of, of arahantship. So you can think of it as a, a succession of four orchards with, with pathways between them. So you know the orchard is there, where the fruit is, but you're on the pathway to it. You, the, the orchard is there, but you're on the pathway to it. So the, uh, hasn't, the orchard hasn't been reached as, as yet, but you know it's there. Right view has been established. The meditator knows the right and the wrong way of practice. They steer between the extremes of pleasure and pain and gradually move down the path of equanimity, but still make mistakes. They know that treading on thorns is painful, but they still can't always avoid doing so. But through constantly laying aside the tendency to attach to, to all that is pleasant and unpleasant in the world of experience, insight deepens until finally they become, quote, a knower of the worlds, unquote. When the mind is completely seen through personality view, all doubts and attachments to precepts and practices disappear. And now the mind of the practitioner is in the world, but not of it, quote-unquote. Lumpur made a comparison with the, the natural separation of oil and paint in a bottle. You're living in the world and follow the conventions of the world, but without attaching to them. When you have to go somewhere, you say you're going. 
When you're coming, you say you're coming. Whatever you're doing, you use the conventions and language of the world. But it's like two liquids in a bottle. They're in the same bottle, but don't mix together. You live in the world, but at the same time, you remain separate from it. The mind doesn't create things around sense contact. Once contact has occurred, you automatically let go. The mind discards the experience. This means that if you are attracted to something, you experience the attraction in the mind, but don't attach or hold on fast to it. If you have a reaction of aversion, there's simply the experience of aversion arising in the mind, and nothing more. There isn't any sense of self arising that attaches and gives meaning and importance to the aversion. In other words, the mind knows how to let go. It knows how to set things aside. Why is it able to let go and put things down? Because the presence of insight means you can clearly see the harmful results that come from attaching to all those mental states. When you see forms, the mind remains undisturbed. When you hear sounds, it remains undisturbed. The mind neither takes a position for or against any sense objects experienced. This is the same for all sense contact, whether it be through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body or mind. Whatever thoughts arise in the mind can't disturb you. You're able to let go. You may perceive something as desirable, but you don't attach to that perception or give it any special importance. It simply becomes the condition of mind to be observed without any attachment. This is what the Buddha described as experiencing sense object as, quote, just that much. Kenan. The sense bases are still functioning and experiencing sense objects, but without the process of attachment stimulating movements to and fro in the mind. Having gained such clear and penetrating insight means that it's sustained at all times, whether you're sitting in meditation with your eyes closed, or even if you're doing something with your eyes open. Whatever situation you find yourself in, be it in formal meditation or not, the clarity of insight remains. When you have unwavering mindfulness of the mind within the mind, you don't forget yourself. Whether standing, walking, sitting or lying down, the awareness within makes it impossible to lose mindfulness. It's a state of awareness that prevents you from forgetting yourself. Mindfulness has become so strong that it is self-sustaining to the point where it becomes the natural state of the mind. These are the results of training and cultivating the mind, and it's here where you go beyond doubt. Lumpur said that realizing that the con constant arising and passing away of all phenomena in accordance with causes and conditions is a fixed, invariable truth, is to find the only kind of permanence that exists. Realizing this truth on unchanging changefulness is, he said, the end of the path that needs to be followed. Quote, unquote. In terms of the Four Noble Truths, the framework for all of Lumpur's practice and teaching, by bringing the eight factors of the Noble Path to maturity, suffering is comprehended, and with the factors sustaining suffering abandoned, suffering ceases. Lumpur said, It is as if an arrow has been pulled out of your heart. And that is the end of that section. Any Questions, thoughts, reflections? Um, I was a little bit confused by the, um, you know, the idea that uh, disenchantment brings about this kind of uh, gloom or negative ones. It seems, uh, for me, practice seems to bring good, <laughs> positive mental states. I wondered. Yeah, your experience of uh, going through that disenchantment. Well, it's uh, well disenchantment. It's <coughs> the Eng it's um, the English word is um, doesn't quite carry the same because it has a tone of, of aversion to it. But it's rather like not believing in Father Christmas anymore, like or not you know not believing in the tooth fairy or or. Um, or when you read a story that says, and they lived happily ever after, and you know, oh, well, it's a story. So that it's um, not believing in the superficialities, what they call the glamour of the world. Like in, in, in mythology, a glamour was when a, a, um, one of the, the, the uh, deities 
or uh, someone with with uh, magical abilities would make uh, um, make their body or make someone else appear differently. They would put a glamour on so that, say, um, um, uh, Athena put a glamour on uh, on Odysseus when he returned to Ithaca, so that he looked like an old man and people wouldn't recognise him, or um, uh, the oh, well, that kind of thing. So that. It's losing the glamour, losing that that sort of false uh, appearance that falls away. So, it's um, uh, it's not a, a negative state, but it's rather like coming out of a dream or not not being or not being fooled by a a, um, a fairy tale or a, or a, that's a wishful thinking. Um, so it's a it's a, a, a radical realism in, in, in actuality, so that. Uh, Disenchantment is is rather like don't, don't don't spoil the don't spoil it for me. I'm enjoying the illusion, or like in the Matrix, is the the uh, the the pill that keeps the illusion going. Do you want the blue pill or the red pill? <laughs> I think the red pill is the one that makes you wake up. The blue pill is the one that keeps the illusion going. Is that right? Who's a Matrix fan here? I think it's the the red pill is the uh, the one that ends the illusion. So it's like taking the red pill. And that uh, in the in the movie, uh, I remember Ajahn Sudanta used to be very fond of this. Is that uh, where um, uh, the 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 hero of the story Neo takes the takes the red pill and then wakes up from the illusion that he's been living in, and then Morpheus, who happens to be the, the god of sleep in Greek mythology, that uh, is the name of the kind of mentor character. Lawrence Fishburne um, says, "Welcome to the desert of the real." So it carries that same kind of oh, oh, <laughs> you know. We, sometimes we like the illusion to be sustained, yeah. and uh, something in us, uh, a, you know, a childlike um, sort of uh, attitude of. of, of you know, don't don't spoil it for me, or just let, let's let's pretend, or you know, this is really worthwhile, isn't it? And um, I, you know, sometimes people will um, uh, will will come to me and uh, they'll talk about um, uh, you know somebody in their family who's died, and they're saying you know, <coughs> you know well you know they they have gone to heaven, haven't they? So, well, <laughs> so they say, well maybe they have, maybe they haven't, you know. But, uh, like, well, you know, tell me, tell me it's all right. Tell me it's all going to... We're all going to be enlightened eventually, aren't we, Ajahn? I can't tell you that. <laughs> we might like to think that, but that's, that's not what the Buddha's teaching says. So when people make that kind of thing, well, tell, tell me it's all going to be all right in, in the end. I say, well, um, the, according to the Buddha's teaching, it'll all be all right if we do the right things. If we don't do the right thing, it won't be all right. It just goes on and on and on and on. So that uh, if we... If the the um, uh, if the we we prefer to live with the illusion of uh, it, it'll all be all right in the end, then that's um, the enchantment. You know, the mind is sort of choosing that bedazzled, enchanted state. It's choosing the glamour, and uh, and it's uh, the the teaching is there to help us to grow up really to not live in those uh, childlike states. So. It's uh, the enchantment is broken, but then um, so something that might have been a bit pleasing or the, the, you know uh, a story that we were enjoying <laughs> might have come to an end. But that, like coming out of a dream, there's a, there's a the, uh, a power and a beauty to the 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 reality of things that no kind of deluded or dream state can can uh, it, it can't provide that same kind of uh, of um, uh, reality, that same kind of richness and strength. So even though it might be a desert, is that that's where the, uh, the, the uh, that's where the the truth lies, is in that. So there's a a sobering or a, a, a okay. Um, you mean Father exi- Christmas doesn't exist? <laughs> yeah, you know, don't tell me that. Yeah, you know, that um, I'm sure you all long since, uh, but. Uh, there, there is a can be a feeling of loss of that uh, a, a cherished illusion being punctured, but um, 
that loss is is um, very very minor in in relationship to the that uh, coming out of the dream and being able to appreciate the the, the reality of things. It, uh, it might be a desert, but there's also a lot of life in the desert as well. <laughs> okay, that's enough for today. Thank you.